This podcast is brought to you by the book, The Memoir Project, a thoroughly non-standardized text for writing in life, published by Grand Central Publishing. Recently updated and reissued in a new edition, it will teach you everything you need to know to write memoir. For more information, see the show notes or purchase wherever books are sold. Welcome to QWERTY. I'm Marion Roach-Smith. And I'm David Lee. Each episode, we talk to writers from all genres to discover what makes a good read. And along the way, we discuss their writing process, discover their tips, and talk about what matters most to writers. So step away from the computer or typewriter for a bit and join us. Quite a collection of typewriters, David, actually. So every time you say that, I think of going and getting out one of the Hermes portables I've got and banging around on it for a while. I don't know. Have you still got some typewriters? It's interesting that you say that because when I was growing up and I wrote about this in my memoir, my grandfather had an old royal typewriter. Remember those? Yes. It had the cloth ribbon that went, and I just loved how it catapulted letters. And I wasn't so much interested in writing as I was that wonderful sort of barbed wire ant crawl across the paper of the letters. So that's the one that I had. And then later on, I did have a portable one I used in college, but uh, I don't have any anymore. Oh, I love them. I have a huge collection of them. And my husband's a newspaper man, so he had a collection. So when we got married, we I think we could have started a museum. But every time you say that, to step away from the typewriter, I think I should go bang around on one, which, yeah. which kind of brings us to our topic for today. We were going to talk about best practices and actually how we get to the work. And I found when I was still using a typewriter, leaving the typewriter out was the single best device I had. In other words, if you had to sort of walk around it in the one room apartment in Manhattan, you did tend to use it, you know, not putting it away ever. And I think writers develop a series of such things. There's certainly lots and lots of listicles, as we call them, online by famous writers of best practices. But I wonder if you've got a couple that you would share with people. I will. And, you know, it's interesting. You've said something, and I think you hit upon a very important point, that the typewriter was there, and a typewriter had one function and one function only, to write something. <laughs> of course, now we all go to computers, and that is everything. That is my I love you machine through the internet world, and I go there and I write emails and I look at funny videos of cats, and the computer has become so much more. It's no longer, we don't longer have one machine to do what we used to do, which is the writing element. So I think that's fascinating. So yes, I do have some of the, the I guess, the best practices. I don't always follow all of them all the time, but I do follow all of them some of the time. Uh, and one of the most important ones for me, and I think about you because I learned this from you when I read your book, The Memoir Project, so long ago, is get a clean desk. Clear everything off your desk. Get everything out of your way so you can just think clearly. And I think that's one of the most important things that I do to start my day is make sure my desk is completely clean. That's a great one. And it's funny because I wrote a 
blog post recently about how I'm I'm a bit grumbly on the subject of Marie Kondo and how mm, tidying yeah. up is supposed to spark joy yeah. because I I really don't believe any of that and so yeah, and I'm I did not a write joyful a, person so it doesn't work for me well I think <laughs> before you give away your last mini skirt you should take some notes on it because there's story there and just the idea of giving stuff away sparking joy is very antithetical to storytelling and your mother's go-go boots if you still have them take some notes on them about watching her leave with your dad to go yeah. out on dates together before you give them away. So I, I wrote a piece, a, a blog post about how you, if, even if you have to climb over your stuff to get to your desk, get to your desk. My mm -hmm. desk itself had never has my taxes on it, never has anything yeah. that can get between me and my work. Yes. But sometimes around the desk, I'm not going to wait and straighten all my pictures to go to yeah. work because yeah. that's the problem. And so best practices is a clean desk, but you know, the clutter in my house, it waits. The dog, um, the, the dog, as we call it the nose juice on the walls from having lived <laughs> with, with five dogs in this house, uh, yeah. over the years, I, my practice, Marion don't look as I go up the stairs to my office every day and yes. don't stop to straighten the pictures. So I think one of the other best practices is to go to work mm -hmm. and leave that desk clean, but the rest of it, ignore it. Maybe yeah. water the plants when you take a break, but that's about it. Yeah. I find that my house is never cleaner and my bread is never more beautiful and buxom than when I have something to write. I just feel <laughs> so drawn to do something else. And I have to quite literally tell myself, sit down, put your ass in that chair and start to write. Now, what do you do? Because for me, that fear every day when I sit down to write whatever I'm writing that day, there's always this great fear. And I have to start all over again every day. It doesn't get any better for me. What do you do to get over that initial hump of well, sitting as down? Our fabulous guest a few episodes ago told us, Lisa Cron told us, don't mm -hmm. let that go away because the, it is. it should be about the fear. You, mm -hmm. you got to ride the dragon's tail, as some people say, or step into the fear, as other people say, or whatever your phrase is. Mm -hmm. It's not supposed to be easy. And when people talk about the zone, I hope what the zone is for me is the belief that the annotation, all the things that I've read thought, seen, heard, tasted, are going to come forward as needed. Maybe not too fast and maybe not mm -hmm. all at the same time, mm -hmm. but there's a bit of the fear I don't mind because there's trust. There's always trust that it will come. And I think that that's a, a place to, to speak to. If you do any kind of meditating or begging, which is mm -hmm. another form of meditating, I think, is just begging for the stuff to come. It's that and saying, I, this feels frightening, but also knowing that you've been observing things all your life and they're in there and you need to marshal them. And that brings up a really important point is for me, it's very hard to sit down every morning. It really is. I have to remind myself that nothing is ever wasted. Sometimes I'll sit down and I'll write some garbage for 25 minutes, but then suddenly there's just this thought that leads to something else and leads to something else. And suddenly the words start to be strung on, on string like pearls one after another, and I get something wonderful. And so I try to remind myself, yes, that junk that I wrote, that quote unquote shitty first draft that many, many people talk about, it has gotten me to where I am at that point. So I have to accept the fact and own the fact that when I sit down and I start to write in the morning, it's not really going to be that good. 
it just, I got to get things moving. And if I don't, if I don't do that on a regular basis, if I don't exercise that muscle, exercise that particular activity, then the, the fear starts to mount so much that I just avoid my desk completely. And that's where trouble sets in. Yeah, that's the good word is exercise. I think you got to get up there and you got to start writing. And mm -hmm. it's not purposeless for me. I, my signature phrase is to write with intent. In other mm -hmm. words, I know that I'm writing, or at least I'm making the first draft, vomit draft of an mm -hmm. essay about X. I, I, I spend a lot of time thinking about what my stuff is about before I sit down to write it mm -hmm. and giving it the, I, honoring the fact that if I'm, if I'm, clear in my intent that the piece will be a bit better shaped than um, just a big blah, blah all over the page. But everybody goes at this differently. I work with yeah. people who blah, blah, blah a lot onto the page. And then we find the shiny object in paragraph number seven, or That's in some cases yes. in chapter 10, you know, mm -hmm. I mm -hmm. spend half of my day moving chapter 10s up to be chapter ones for people and saying, look what happens to this book when you open with this. So yeah. I think it's getting there. I think it's writing. I think it's allotting the time. Um, those There are those people who are word count people. Graham mm -hmm. Greene, the great Graham Greene, wrote 500 words a day. That's it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he did pretty well. And he then sure <laughs> there are some people, I teach my, my classes and my master classes three pages a day, and everybody laughs in the beginning. That's 15 pages a week. That's 60 mm -hmm. pages a month. That's a 300-page first draft in five months. Don't sneeze at it. That's exactly. discipline. And so for me, after the desk and after the intent, my next best practice is discipline. And I spend a lot of time on panels and talk shows and, and Q&As, and I'm always the, the the Betty bummer on every panel, because when they ask the question that they always ask, what is creativity? The first guy always says, well, it's a cosmic transformation yeah, 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 of your yeah. right. And I, and I start making, you know, like uh, the yeah. rolling of the eyes. And the next guy says, it's the combination of the, and I, and they get to me and I say, all creativity begins with discipline. Yes, and that's does. just true. It is. It really is. And when it, part of my discipline after I've gone through, because I am one of those writers who, when he starts something, I need to loosen up. I need to get to that sixth paragraph to really understand what I'm trying to say. That's just the way I've always been. And yet when I worked with you, interestingly enough, I did have an entire outline because I knew what I wanted to write. It was a memoir. It was about my life. Now that I'm writing fiction, I know what I want to say, but boy, the characters kind of pull me in different places that I don't expect. So I have to kind of honor that, but at the same time, figure out what's best for the story. But after that point, after I start writing, one of the things I think that's important is not to edit while you're writing. That is, I think, crucial. I think it is. And so if we're making a punch list, we've got the mm -hmm. clean desk, the intent, the discipline. But what you just covered there in a second was the wonder, to, mm -hmm. to give in to the wonder and yes. don't be too rigid. So you said memoir was one thing, fiction is another, and I get pulled by my characters, yes. that's giving into the wonder and allowing the wonder to have a real role. You're not going to be able to explain the wonder to your sister-in-law. Trust me, Never. I have a sister-in-law and she keeps asking me if I'm ever going to get a real job. <laughs> so don't explain that part to them. But, um, you know, as to your last point, yes, absolutely. Yeah. The reason I think for me, what happens is the minute the editor starts to come in as I'm writing, the wonder does go away. And I start to I start to look at 
parallels. I start to look at, is there any kind of clanging? And for me, clanging is the use of words that sound too similar. And then I, I get out of that bubble that I was in. And maybe that's the zone that people talk about. And what's interesting is when you are there, you, you start to go, you start to create. And, and what I find fascinating too is as I was writing this particular part of the novel, which may never get published, you know, our, our listeners will find out as I do, but I couldn't believe some of the names of, of places and some of the things that I was having the characters do. When I finally stepped back and looked at it several days later or a week later, the meanings, when you start looking up the meanings of some of these names and stuff, were perfectly suited to what was going on. I never could have told you that when I wrote it. <laughs> and that's that wonder. But if right. I would have sat there and thought, hmm, this person's a very angry person. Why don't I call her Angriana or something? Then it's ridiculous. <laughs> but suddenly you find these names that have this edge to it and you go, wow, that really is that's very appropriate. Well, J.K. Rowling would agree with you. She's the queen of names and sending yes. eight-year-olds to the dictionary to look up fantastic words that characterize someone perfectly, as was Charles Dickens. You know, my very mm -hmm. favorite is the, I think it's in Little Dorrit, the Department of Circumlocution. And yes. it's, it's an office in London that you have to go to if you want to do, I think it's a real estate transfer. And it's perfect. It has a circular mm -hmm. staircase and they just throw all the paperwork into the stairwell. And yeah. You know, just and that's just it. The editor brain is going to see all of the junk in the vomit draft, and mm -hmm. you don't want the editor brain there. So I always tell people not to edit as they're writing yeah. the first draft, because my first drafts are filled with bumper stickers, uh, lyrics oh, to yeah. share songs. You know, mm -hmm. uh, uh, right? Uh, really, I believe I'm right. in love. I'm right? Low. I mean, I don't care what I put into the first draft. It's about throwing it out, vomiting mm -hmm. it up, getting it down. And then again, looking later, the editing is to go in and find what were you, what were you exploring? Well, I said before, I go in with intent. I go in to try to, to map the history of my aspiration of cooking, let's say, that mm -hmm. how my cooking life really reveals all the women I've tried to be in this life. Let's say, you know, there's, there's an essay I keep meaning to write. And I can do that by looking at my recipe file and sort of show you when I wanted to be this kind of woman, but then I grew up to be this kind of person. That isn't going to benefit from a whole lot of editing in the first thoughts of it. Absolutely. I've got to throw that open wide and see what comes up and trust what comes up under the rubric, under the topic of aspirational cooking. Yeah. Yeah. And what's interesting too, I think I got to the point when I was doing my memoir that it was so hard because there was that deadline that was looming and that was pressing on me. And I could feel it kneeling on my chest the closer I got toward the end. And as you know, I was, I contracted Lyme disease. I was getting very sick and it was harder for me to finish. And there's actually a program online. There are several programs online that actually you can go in and start to type. And as soon as you type that first line, it goes away. So you cannot go back and edit and re-edit and edit and re-edit. And I'll tell you, talk about fear. But once you got used to that idea, that that line is just temporary and, and you just go and you go. And then at the end of it, when you stop your session, you can copy and paste all of it wherever you want. It was a fascinating process because it freed me up because I no longer had to worry about looking up or looking down. I only had one line to look at. 
That's fabulous. So six yes. on our list of best practices is do what's necessary to write. Whatever and there is. are a lot of things under that category. I just had somebody who I really admire, who's a big famous writer, turn me down when I invited her to come on to QWERTY to do the podcast. Shame and she, on her. I know. But she <laughs> said, I'm too busy on my book tour. Mm-hmm. You know, I have to say, I admired the no. I said to myself, I wonder if I said no more often, if I'd get more copy written every day. So I have to say, I really admired her no. And I said mm-hmm. to myself, if I said no more often, would I have more time to write? That's and a good point. I think that doing what is necessary to write is personal. And you Mm kind of have to fill in the blanks, those people who are listening, whatever that means, you might have to get a babysitter, you might have to leave the dog at daycare, you might have to renegotiate the contract that is your marriage that says from now on, you know, nine to 10 every morning, I I just am not going to answer the phone. I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do that, whatever it is. Or as a student of mine years ago, had a deal with his spouse that from eight to 10 every night after the kids had done their homework, his time was dedicated to writing because he ran a company during the day. Mm -hmm. And his spouse totally went with that. And with that, he wrote five books and three screenplays. And I really admired that discipline. She had things that she liked to do in the evening. They had split the childcare. So do what's necessary to write is a personal list you must make that has to do with boundaries. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Anything else on your best practices? Oh, yeah, I got tons of them. Mm -hmm. Um, For me, one of the things I do is after I've written something and go over it maybe once or twice lightly, I leave it be. I don't go back to look at it for at least a week because I need to have, I need for what I wrote to sort of percolate in my unconscious for connections to be made. Like if I'm really stuck sometimes too, this is a tip. And I got this actually from you. If I get stuck, I take a shower. (laughs) I do. I'm sometimes, I'm the cleanest person when I'm stuck. I'll take a shower because for some reason my mind wanders and things unlatch and unhook. And I start to maybe get a connection that I didn't see. And that's why going back to your work, A week later, you're like, my gosh, I didn't see this. I didn't see that. That's when the editor can come out. And Mm -hmm. when I do that, I also read it out loud. Because I believe as you're reading, if you stumble, one of two things are happening. That there's some untruth. Something is not truthful. Or there's some sort of syntactical, grammatical, structural error that you're having a problem with. And so I always listen to those stumbles and make notes notes of it. Because I realize, okay... Then this grammatical stuff, or hmm, I'm holding back here and there's something going on, or I'm not fully telling what actually was going on, especially in memoir. Mm. And those that's two things I do. Those are two things that I do a week later or so. And it's very helpful to me. So the leave it be and then read it aloud. I'm a huge believer in reading it aloud. I was lucky enough to have the best editor in the business as my first editor. Her name is Nan Talese and she's She's revered in the world. And she she made me come in once a month as I was writing my first book and read aloud my pages as she touched every word with a pencil and we read them on the page together. This taught me a really good practice, which is I read aloud to myself every single day. Here's what a friend of mine does who's a very successful novelist. He writes from 7 to 12 every morning. Then he eats lunch. And then at 1 o'clock, he goes for a run. But before he does, he records what he's written onto his iPhone. 
And that's what he listens to as he runs. And he edits from three to five. So there are a lot of variations of reading to yourself, but everybody Mm. knows that the brain loves it and it works really well. I can't Mm. write very well in the afternoons. I write really well in the morning. That's another best practice is to know when your brain works best. And then to edit, I can edit beautifully in the afternoon because the caffeine is worn off and I'm not so jittery. Um, and I can sit still and actually pay attention. So I love that. Leave it be, read it aloud. So good. What else have you got on your list? I think one big lap. Okay. I believe one last big one for me is accountability. And I learned this from a friend of mine, the idea of, I do this every Thursday morning, actually with two friends of mine who are writers between 10 and 12, we say, we're going to sit down and we're going to write. And nothing else is going to happen. And when we're done, we're going to text each other and tell each other how many pages, how many words, whatever our particular marker or measure is. And then we tell them. And that that accountability is important. And when I was working with you uh, as a student, when I was writing my memoir, there was a built-in accountability because mm-hmm. I needed to get certain pages to you by a certain time for you to be able to look at them and get them back to me so I could meet my deadline. So there was always a sense of accountability. And when you kind of strap that on and accept the fact that there's some stricture or some sort of um, deadline or some sort of demand on you and you accept it. It's like a harness and you accept it, you go with it and it becomes very useful. And sometimes I find that I free float on those days that I'm not writing with my friends or, you know, after I wrote the memoir, I didn't touch anything major for almost two years. I, mm-hmm. I, I didn't know how to get back to where I needed to get back. And I'm finding that some of these practices we're talking about right now, are what I'm using almost daily mm-hmm. while I'm writing. Accountability is really important. I put a post-it note up on the kitchen cabinet in the most public part of my home mm-hmm. and I, when I'm writing a book. And I put my word count or my page count, depending on which way I'm going at that for that project, up on it with no explanation. But everyone who comes in the kitchen says to me, what's this? And that's the way I live up to my goals is it's up for all the world to see. And my family's so used to it that they don't even ask about it anymore, which is very funny. But Mm -hmm. I'm always amused when people ask about it. So we've got accountability. And then I think that if there's 10 of these, and I think that we will have 10 at the end of this, I think that making it, I think we should make sure we reinforce that one that we discussed, but I didn't put in the list, which is making and meeting the deadlines. And, yes. you know, that that's, that's part of the accountability, I guess. But then it's the, the word count or page count thing. And I just want to go back to that for a moment because you need to set an end point for each day of writing. And if you've only got 45 minutes a day to write, and lots of my clients have only 45 minutes a day to write, you have to say, I'm going to get 500 words. I'm going to get 500 words every day, five days a week. If I miss a day, I'm going to do it the next day. I'm never going to, however, ever double up and try to do 1,000 or 1,500 on one day. You just start again the next day that you can go back to the job. I always, this is how I teach it with the 500. So it becomes habitual. Mm-hmm. So this is the 10th of the the writing best practices I think we'll present, which is habitual. And you do that by using this idea of, of making and meeting deadlines in a way that you cannot not make your 500 words every day. And those 500 do add up. I think those are some great practices. They are. I'd be so interested to hear other people's. Let me, let me, I just want to finish one little thought that you could say, I'm interested in hearing what you guys have to say. Mm-hmm. Um, 
in talking about deadlines, either word count or page count, what I find my word count right now is 750 a day. Mm -hmm. And when I sit down and I get my 750 words a day, there's a sense of joy and there's a sense of release I experience. I don't walk around the rest of the day going, "Mm, I didn't do my 750, I did 300, I'm a bad writer, I'm a bad person, I'm just going to eat six pints of Ben and Jerry's ice cream. Something happens and I release myself. And then the next day is slightly more joyous than the day before because I actually met my goal. Mm -hmm. It's positive reinforcement. Absolutely. It's it's a work is a value in itself, and just mm-hmm. because this is creativity based, doesn't mean it isn't work. Which right. is why I'm so intolerant when people tell me that when they retire they're going to become writers, and I get so snotty about <laughs> it because I, I've spent my life at this and I really believe in it. Yeah. So we had a bunch of questions come in from people that we wanted to we get did. to, mm-hmm. and as starting up as a regular feature, answering those questions. Um, so let's take those. How about that? That'd be great. So uh, we have one from Heidi Ferber, who lives in Kamloops, British Columbia, Canada, and Mm. she wants to know about writing the hard stuff. And she wants to know how the the actual process of writing helps tell your story when it's something that's impossible to talk about. And I think that you've dealt with some very hard topics in your first book. And I certainly have some experience with all of the clients I've dealt with. So what do you think and about your the first book too? And my first it's book was tough. dealing with my mother's Alzheimer's disease. Yeah. So I'm happy to ask you to go first, if you'd like, sure. to think about what the process of writing did for you to tell your tale. Well, I think the first thing that had to happen on some of the elements, for instance, when I talked about attempt, well, it was sexual abuse, um, childhood sexual abuse, I needed to just admit that it happened. I had to I had to agree that it happened and make an agreement with myself. And I had to be gentle with myself as I wrote it. I also told myself, I may not need to or want to include this in the book if it doesn't serve the story. So when I gave myself the freedom of it may never go any farther than just write on this page, I was able to relax and release and start writing it. And what happened was there's this out-of-body experience that kind of happens as I wrote it and then as I read it and then wrote and reread it and rewrote that I was able to get a different perspective on actually what happened. And I saw that while it was a horrible thing that happened, it was such a crucial point in my life. I didn't realize the impact, the profound impact it had until I started seeing it. So not only was I writing something that hopefully would help other people, it also helped me start getting a perspective on my life in a way that therapy or talking or being with friends and sharing never did. Hmm. So that's kind of how I approach some of the really hard stuff. How about you? That's great. So for me, it's that I am able to make others and myself characters. Mm-hmm. And I think we're saying the same thing, just differently, that mm-hmm. you can turn them into characters and thereby look at them, mm-hmm. as opposed to only inhabiting it from the inside, you can inhabit it and do the 360 around the experience, to have a good yes. look at somebody, and also to have the ability to do some reporting on the story, reminds you that there are different takes 
even on your story. In other words, mm-hmm. your sister might say, you know, it was really no big deal when you did that. And um, to you, it's this most traumatic, embarrassing thing you ever did. And she barely remembers it. So doing mm-hmm. a little reporting, reporting around it, asking the people in your life what that thing looked like to them gives you a perspective that's very, very helpful. So I think the process yeah. of writing ends up helping the nearly impossible to be told. So we had another one. Let's just do mm-hmm. two for today. How about that? Sure. We had one That'd from Allison Hong Merrill, who asks, mm-hmm. I would like to learn more about how to effectively self-promote and market my book. Mm. That's a big one, isn't it? It is. I have a quick answer. Oh, great. And what is it? That is, and we're going to have her on the show in a few months, I go to Jane Friedman. JaneFriedman.com is the world's leading authority on the business of writing. In fact, her most recent book is called The Business of Writing, and I just simply take everything to Jane, meaning I just go to her website and search for the answer. Whether or not a book proposal needs to include the entire book or a synopsis, whether or not a um, blog post should promote your, uh, test your material of your book um, on the public, whether or not you should serialize a book, but everything having to do with promotion and marketing, I just go to Jane and she's brilliant. Wow. That's great. Well, I honestly, I knew Jane, I just never went to her website, but for Allison to have some practical things right now, besides going to Jane's website, I, this is a cliche. I know it is. It wasn't a cliche when 20 years ago when I started, but getting a blog and Why that's important is people, the first thing someone does when they hear something they like or they read something they like about somebody, they go to the internet and they try to find them. They need a place to find you. They need a place to land to get into your world. And while social media is such a time suck, finding those social media platforms that work for what you're trying to do. So when I write about food and photograph food and, and everything and promote what's on my website, I use Instagram. I get such traction there and I get some on Facebook. But when I'm talking about something I've written, I go to Facebook because I don't get that kind of traction on Instagram. So knowing which social platforms work for you is very important also. Yes. Even if you just get a landing page where your name, mm-hmm. which is in your name so that exactly. we can find you so that you start by doing a couple of guest posts on some large blogs and, yes. and a, an agent or an editor reads it and wants to find you and they can. Um, two of my four books came out of shorter pieces I had written that um, got the response from somebody of, Hey, would you like to write a book about that? Mm-hmm. So I think it's huge that, that you be able to be found. Um, one of the things that editors and agents will ask immediately if they like an idea is what's your platform. And that just means how many different ways can you attract people to this book? Mm -hmm. And so you do want to start platform building before you start pitching a book, even if it's just having a landing page. So something that an editor-in-chief over at HarperCollins told me that they're kind of changing their model. They're not so much looking at how big your platform is, which of course is important, but another marker and a more important marker for them was how interactive were you? How much do you write back to your to your readers? How much do your readers write to you? That interaction back and forth is really that kind of engagement is very important to them because it means that these people are so dedicated to you and you to them that there's this, this force that is around you as you write. So that's something also besides platform is engagement and interaction is very, very important. 
Well, that's wonderful. I love that because I yeah. consider all my Instagram p- friends friends now and we're swapping everything on Instagram. Exactly. So right. I love that. And and why don't we leave it there in terms of our first foray, at least, into best Terrific. practices for writers. That was fun. Thank you so much, David. I loved everything I learned here. And I think we've got a nice little 10 point list of best practices. As always, thanks for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to QWERTY and listen to us wherever you go. Until next time, thank you for listening. Our producer is Adam Claremont. Our assistant is Lorna Bailey. And this podcast was produced and recorded by Overit Studios. Reach them at overitstudios.com.